Welcome to the Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Stick around for interviews, analysis, fan stories, and our love affair with Phoenix Rising. And now to kick things off is your host, Niall McCarthy. Welcome, Phoenix Rising family. Here's what you have to look forward to in today's show. In Chapter 1, we break down the Tampa Bay Rowdies game with Owen Evans and Kelly McCarthy. In Chapter 2, we get to hear two origin stories from Susio and Tori. They tell us about how they fell in love with Phoenix Rising and what the club means to them. In Chapter 3, after the segment with Susio and Tori, which I know you will love, we preview our next game, a home game where we take on Las Vegas Lights. As part of that, I speak with Ray Brewer. He writes about the Lights as the managing editor for the Las Vegas Sun newspaper. He'll bring us up to date on the drama and controversy surrounding the affiliation between the Las Vegas Lights and the MLS team LAFC. It's super interesting, unprecedented, and from where I'm sitting, totally whack. That's just another day for Las Vegas Lights. Chapter 4, with the help of USL analyst and game commentator, Devin Kerr, Kelly is back to tell us about the standings. Guys, I've heard league standings on many a TV station and from many a podcast, but I've never heard the standings done the way Kelly does them. Give it a listen and let me know what you think. Finally, Chapter 5, in a segment we call Extra Time, how could we let this week go by without talking about the refereeing in the Tampa Bay Reddies game? We couldn't. That refereeing was horrible, atrocious, the absolute worst. And that's what the Phoenix Rising fan base said. And we'll tackle it head on and see if Phoenix Rising have a valid case to submit for a formal grievance to the league. The season is building, the passions are growing, we love it, we are the Phoenix Rising FC family and you are listening to the Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family, we've suffered our first loss and we don't like it. On May 15th we took on Tampa Bay Rowdies in St. Petersburg, Florida, it was an away game for us and we lost 2-1. So after the match, Rick Shantz, our coach, he tweeted a tough loss to a very good opponent. We learned a lot about our team. We'll work hard to improve and be ready to move forward. So we're going to drill down on that and think about what we could have learned from that match. But to start us off, Kelly, you saw the match at a watch party. There were two watch parties yesterday, one at the Vine, one at the Churchill. Which one did you go to? The Churchill. And how was your experience? Not great. I mean, a valiant effort to put together a watch party. Delighted that they did that. I think, you know, watching a game with fellow fans always has the opportunity to elevate the fan experience. Uh, But it wasn't perfect. You know, obviously, we had the false start with the ESPN, ESPN News situation and the softball game. And then the actual environment there just wasn't perfect. Like, We didn't have audio. They attempted to pipe the audio, but it wasn't loud enough. So we didn't have the benefit of really hearing anything. And then with the sun coming in and the placement of the televisions, it was just, it was a little bit of a rough viewing experience. Okay. Would you go back? If I didn't have any other way to watch the game, I'd go back, but I don't think I'd go back for the fan experience. So next time, maybe it's a trip to Tempe for you. I'm going to reach out and see if if, uh, anybody has any feedback about the Vine and Tempe. Owen, how did you watch the match? Oh, I went for the uh, far lazier approach of just watching it from my couch on my own TV. So (laughs) Good choice. (laughs) So you didn't have the glare on the screen. You didn't have the 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 bad audio experience so you you had a treat compared to what Kelly's telling us <laughs> having said that the game itself was not a treat especially first 4 minutes we saw an own goal tell us about that own i feel sorry for Aiden on that one there's not a lot i don't think there's not a lot i think he could have done um and i think there was a, a Tampa Bay player you know just behind him that if he hadn't have intervened probably would have gotten on the end of it and tucked it in anyway. The problem comes, I think, with how that was set up, and it it, it kind of summarises the way that Rising played for a lot of the game. They didn't clear their lines very well. Uh, they had a habit of getting caught out of position 
sometimes on those kind of quick breaks. And it really left them exposed, especially early. I mean, it wasn't much later than that. And De Santos had two attempts that he, quite frankly, should have buried. And he put them over the crossbar. Again, because Rising can't clear its lines, ultimately is getting caught out of position on that quick transition. And that's where the problem is. So I think, could Aiden have maybe done something a bit different? I, I don't know. Um, but I think it's a little bit harsh it would be to pin that on him. Kelly, your thoughts? I think at that point in the game and for for much of the first half, we were playing fairly frenetically. Um, we weren't – and obviously, you know, the start of a game, everything is a bit frenetic, but it took us a while to figure out who we were and how we were going to play against this game. And so this this was an early error, and I think part of it was just – there were a lot of players that felt really out of sorts, but um, this is the first time our backline was really tested this game. And I think we found some holes and some weaknesses and communication might be one of them. I mean, you can't replay this scenario and see how it would have gone differently the way Owen's saying. I think it would have been, it would have been interesting to see how our keeper had taken on this play and what would have happened from there. Sure. Well, Quinn tried to make up for it in the 14th minute. He took a shot on goal. It was saved in the 16th minute. Again, he had a shot and, and he missed. That There was a lot going on. I think from a neutral's perspective, it was a, it was a really entertaining game. What do you think of Moore's goal in the 68th minute? Well, I think that overall, Moore didn't have his best game this season. I think that there were a few times where you maybe the, you know, he didn't make the right decision going forward. However, on this goal, he just shows you with the kind of form that he's been on, what you can expect, even when he's not having his best game. He has got the quality to completely change the game in a moment. Um, and it is a fantastic strike. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And you have three goals in three games now. You've really got to be saying, if he keeps up this kind of form you know it's far too early at the moment despite what some people will be telling you on twitter to have that mvp conversation but if you can keep up this form you, you'd have to imagine that by the end of the year he would be in that conversation for me one of the things that i liked most about this goal was that he was aggressive and he uses a couple of skills that i'd like to see from other players first of all for some reason um, he seems like one of the few players we have that have like traditional old school ball skills. Like he's just, he's really good on the ball. And I know we pass a lot, so there's not a ton of opportunity for us to see that across the pitch, but I miss it. And I think it was lacking from this game. Someone that was willing to take possession um, and move the ball themselves around the field. The other thing though, which contradicts that, but also is true is he's good with like the early touches and there's just too many instances on our team and especially in this game where p players are taking an extra touch and they're losing that advantage of field position. And this is one where he takes the minimum number of touches and just blasts it. And, and I, I agree it's too early to talk MVP, but he is such a complete player. And I think that shows up each game. I mean, he also plays a lot of defense in the last two games. I've taken minimal notes and in both weeks I put more plays defense and it's awesome to see. So just a quick shout out. Love to more. Okay. Let's talk about our defense. We had the same goalie. Ben Lunt was in goal. Our center backs, Toby Adewole and James Musa, Darnell King, right full back, Ryan Flood, left full back. How did we do on defense last night, Owen? Well, I think it was the the main problem was just that they couldn't seem to clear their lines for parts of the game. Um, they would get the ball. One clearance from Adewoli in particular sticks in mind where it seemed to barely travel at all. Um, and he just had that problem when they were right back under pressure. We haven't seen Adewoli be challenged in the way he, he was in that last game prior to the last game. So I don't, it, it's hard, right? Because this is... They're coming up against one of the best teams in the league. You expect them to be challenged. You expect them to have to do things that they haven't had to in these last few games. So it shouldn't come as a shock to us whatsoever that they didn't look as sharp as they did against Roots. They didn't look as sharp as they did against a, a San Diego side that then went on to lose against RGV and Tacoma. The real, I guess, question is why? And I think that's something that Rick is going to be 
sitting down, or more sorry, how, how did they ultimately fail to, you know, stop some of those quick breaks to fail to clear their lines? How did that happen? And that's what Rick's going to be sitting down, I presume, and, and trying to work out this week. Kelly, your thoughts? Uh, the cohesiveness just didn't feel right. And, you know, one of the things I really felt when, I guess, last season or the season before, you know, when we had a feral in the back line, even um, AJ Cochran, like I felt that they felt the responsibility ended with them. I felt that intense passion from them. <laughs> and I just don't feel it. I don't know who is leading in our back line that's going to say, you will not get through me. Um, I just didn't feel that. Okay. A lot of eyes are on Ryan Flood, our new signing in left fullback. Um, I know that there, I saw two t-shirts out there with Flood on the back and that brought a smile to my face. How did he do last night, Owen? Well, I think he did fine. Um, I think the thing you have to bear in mind, let, let's not blow smoke up his ass too soon. Um, he's definitely had a good start, but his good start is more the fact that I don't think anybody had any real expectations of him, okay? And he's played well, he's adapted well to the professional level, okay? But we're also only three games in, right? He, he's he got that surprise factor. As you see with any player, right, when they make the step up, there's that element of the unknown about them. Um, how will he adapt when teams know how to deal with him? That's what we're going to have to see. That's going to be the challenge for him. And how he reacts to that is ultimately going to find how successful he is at this club. Yes, he's had a good start. Yes, he's not looked out of place whatsoever. But over the coming weeks, I think we're going to see more. And that's really going to tell us what kind of a player he is. Kevin Lambert, Aidan Quinn, and John Beccaro played midfield. What are your thoughts on any of those players, Kelly? I wasn't overall impressed. I think the first couple of games we've been singing the praises of the midfield, how they work together, how they worked with the rest of the team. I didn't feel it as much last night. I felt Beccaro was a calming presence. I mentioned that the pace felt frenetic, the the team felt frenetic to me. A couple of players stood out as feeling like they were calm and they knew who they were on the field. Bacaro was one of them, but he didn't really shine in terms of performance. Uh, I felt they needed, the midfield in general, needed to pick up the attack. You know, the defensive line on the other team was really holding, uh, was doing their job, doing a great job, keeping our front line kind of uh, ineffective. And I just, I wanted to see the midfield holding the ball more, making more plays happen. And I, it, I didn't feel it. Was there a lack of passion in the midfield, Owen? I mean, that's a difficult one to, to, to really address. I think part of the problem as well might come down to just the, the contrasting shapes between the two teams. I mean, when you look at Tampa, their formation is, is different to Risings. It's actually what Rising tried to do later on in the game a little bit, whereby what you have is you've got the three defenders You've got two wing backs, but then you have two defensive midfielders and their two wingers actually come inside a bit more. I mean, they're, they're a little bit more like having two tens. And so the result is you've almost got like four players, I guess, right in the, the heart of the midfield at times up against three for rising because for rising those wingers do stay outside or when they cut in, they cut in further up the pitch. As a whole, I think that it wasn't the midfield's best game. I, I think that Kev Lambert still had a, a fairly decent game. Um, wasn't spectacular, but it, it wasn't a bad performance from him at all. Let's move up to our terrifying trio up front. Were they terrifying yesterday? Solo was on the right, Santi was on the left, Rufat Dadashov in the middle. Kelly. I think my main concern is with Dadashoff. I know it's early. I know Owen makes the point that, you know, confidence can wax and wane. And I agree, but I just feel like, um, and this is something I'd be interested to hear Owen's thoughts on. I just feel like he is playing up too high into their goal. He's constantly facing the wrong direction. He needs to be able to turn and shoot if he wants to play up there. Um, he's not in the air enough to be distracting to the keeper. So that's kind of where my eyes were. Again, I was hoping for the midfield to pick up some attacking slack. Um, and between them not doing that and Dadashov basically putting himself out of position, uh, I think the attack was lack. 
Owen. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) It is that point where you have to say, yes, it's okay now, but for how much longer will it be okay? That one of the bigger problems we've we've seen with Rufat is, or at least in this last game, something that's really been fruitful for Rising is that they've been pouncing on those loose balls. And there were a couple of times where I almost felt that Rufat was just that second behind mentally, um, looking to pounce on those. And so there were chances to attack the ball when it came out from the goalkeeper that he wasn't taking. And, you know, on another night, maybe he would have, but he didn't last night. And ultimately, maybe if he'd have gotten on the end, Maybe we'll be looking at a different result. I'm going to give the final word to our captain, Solomon Asante. He said on Twitter last night, it's not defeat that destroys you, it's being demoralized by defeat that destroys you. Beautiful quote. Thank you for that solo. A few weeks ago, Alex and his mom, Nancy, came on the show to talk about their origin story. What's an origin story? Well, an origin story is about a personal connection to Phoenix Rising. It's about a journey that takes us from not knowing about the club to becoming passionate supporters. The interview you are about to hear turned into its own story about how the lives of two guys, Susio and Tori, became interwoven to their love of Phoenix Rising. This is a two-part story. Here in part one, we start out talking about soccer anthems. If you look at an MLS team like Minnesota United, they sing the Oasis song Wonderwall. Liverpool, they've got You'll Never Walk Alone. And when you hear these songs being sung by thousands of people, you just can't help but be moved by just the raw power and passion that they bring. So do you guys lay awake at night and wish that we had one of those anthems? Or do you try to think of the perfect anthem for us? Or is it just me? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, it is. Seattle Sounders game and if you haven't gone to something like that it is one of the best experiences that you can go to and then you know that is something that I think we eventually as a as a club and as a bunch of supporters will get we're just kind of waiting yeah waiting for the magic waiting for somebody to come up with something I grew up in Ireland we had songs in, in the stadiums that would reverberate around the stadium. It was just in, incredible. And I, I kind of miss that. I feel like we should have it. You know, we've got sold out stadiums. I feel like we should have a unifying anthem. So I'm with you guys. I, I live in hope. Can I ask you your origin stories? Susio, let's start with you. How did you hear about Phoenix Rising? Phoenix Rising, I first became familiar with the name way, way back in the day when they were a fan-based movement to try to get a team down here and they would uh there was a fan group called phoenix rising that would go to games and and games like mexico versus whoever it was here that they were playing or even mexican inner uh mexican friendly games from the the liga that were up here they would go and try to represent to try to show that hey there is a there is a passion here so i was familiar with the name back then but then there was uh Arizona United and then I believe there were Lobos or the Wolves for for a moment and you know there was a, there was still like a, an organization that had passion and had a fan base but was still trying to find itself and when it you know being being somebody who at the time was moving throughout the state of Arizona not necessarily permanently here in in the valley I wasn't able to you know be a part of that transitional period but when I came back and the, the name was changed and they went with Phoenix Rising, I, I never forgot, you know, that name from back in the day. And I just loved it. I felt, I felt okay, now they found the identity, you know, and, it, and, and I think they played with that from the beginning, which is that community involvement and, and what got it here, which was a passion here in the community. And that's one reason I, I love this organization so much is because of that. They, they don't, they don't um, use it as a means of just talking about it and not being about it. They they really do um, act about that, about that community. And I think it goes back, it goes all the way to the name. So that's when I first heard about it and came involved. And then when I was uh, back up here in the Valley, I was able to, you know, a couple of seasons ago, start, you know, get my seasons and start going and, and uh, been going ever since. 
Awesome. How about you, Tori? What's your origin story? How did you hear about Phoenix Rising FC? I think um, it happened kind of back when they were Arizona United. I want to say that there was a Groupon, unfortunately, is how I first heard about them. Because I had been searching for a pro team to kind of watch, and I was hoping that they had one. Um, but I think it finally hit when um, they became the Rising, and there was my friends at work said, hey, did you know that Drogba is playing in Phoenix? And was, I thought like, well, what team or whatever? He goes, no, for a Phoenix team, he's part owner. And so we kind of looked and jumped on that and went to the first game that we were all able to go to. And I've been ever since. It was one of the greatest experiences. And it was just mind mind-blowing that there was a pro team that had some as you know big name as Didier on the on the team for sure um Susio back over to you do you have any game day rituals or routines um actually I do um and it actually involves my scarves <laughs> which is really corny I'm sure but I have to wear my scarves around my wrists. I, I grab them, I twirl them around, I shake them. Um, that's really it. As far as rituals or routines or superstitions, if I go to a game and I don't have them, especially on both hands, it, it's kind of like when you when you leave without your watch, you can feel it and it kind of bugs you and it, it sits on the back of your brain. But that would be the closest thing I have. Yeah, these routines and, and rituals, they're, they're pretty special for us. Do you remember your first Phoenix Rising game at Casino Arizona Field? Do you remember who you went with? Do you remember what you first thought about it all? Yeah, you know, it was the first game of the season there. And I actually went with my uh, my oldest son. Um, he's way into, you know, basketball and the Suns. And, and you know, that's his passion. And, and I was very supportive of that. And I was looking into, you know, going to this rise game and I thought you know what I'll take him see if he likes it I never really knew where he stood on the sport so I took him and like me he instantly was addicted hooked the energy was just amazing and it really was like like you said you know your first time uh going to the game and getting that vibe it's something you don't forget and it and i'm glad to say that that was with my oldest son that that's what was cool about it nice one where did you sit or where did you guys stand that day oh it was in the supporter section um because i from game one said you know what i want to see what that's like i've never sat in a supporter section of of a team and, and really any level because I never was in a city that had a team like that, that even had that. So, you know, having seen it on, you know, TV and whatnot, uh, wanting to, I wanted to catch that vibe. So the very first game I made sure we were in that section and we've always been in that section. Were you passionate from the start or was there something that happened that just brought your level of passion to the next level? Well, I've always been passionate about the game. I, I played it my whole life since I was four up until 29. I'm 41 now. So I played it a large portion of my life and I've always been passionate about the game. As far as the team itself, you know, I did have teams that I liked, but those are, you know, Premier League teams or teams in the Liga MX, but, um, or even in, in the Spanish uh, Liga. But I, as far as here and going to a game here that or to a support a team that was local or in the vicinity that I could support it, you know, sitting in that section, you know, hearing the drums, catching the feelings, catching that energy did take it to a whole nother level. Um, my passion for rising has very, very much um, surpassed my passion for a lot of my, my other teams, you know, and a lot of my other you know, um, squads that I used to support in other sports, you know. Tori, over to you. When did you get super passionate about Phoenix Rising? Our first game that we went to kind of started everything like a slow burn. You know, I went with a couple of my, my co-workers and I was a manager at the time, bought tickets, took them with me. It was like, hey, like, this is awesome. We all love this sport. Let's let's see what goes on. And let's actually sit over there in the supporter section just to kind of see what it's like. We've never been into that. 
you know, we've always watched it on TV and everything. And, you know, like Susio, I've played my entire life. I played since four or five, all the way up to about 22. And then, you know, periodically just little co-ed leagues and stuff like that every once in a while. And I refed for seven or eight years. So, I mean, I was at one point, that's all I did, which is eat, sleep, and breathe soccer. Loved it. I love the sport. Watching it on TV is nice, but there's just not the atmosphere. And you get to, you know, you get to the games and even, you know, you get a lot of people that'll say, well, I can't watch soccer because it's, you know, it's boring. Nothing happens. And then you get there and you actually in a section that nobody sits down they i mean there's not a moment that, that game is not going on that they're not beating drums or you know chanting or yelling and you know talking smack to the team down there and it's just it was just amazing and i think the day i can remember the day that i i said I am going to get season tickets from now on where we were sitting in the supporter section there. The most epic, I mean, you search Phoenix Rising, I think this is the first thing that pops up on YouTube or anything, was the Jason Johnson, you know, scissor kick that he had in there. And we just, I mean, was staring right at it. I had to like pinch myself. I could not believe, could not believe that that actually happened. <laughs> you know, and it took me a couple of days to like watch the replays and everything after that. But I just, and then from then on, I was like, oh yeah, this is how it's going to be. You don't, I think, officially feel like a supporter, at least in my opinion, until you've experienced one of those games where it's just like, you know what, <laughs> like this is where I belong. Yeah. I will never sit anywhere else. That's great. I love hearing fan stories. It it brings me back because, you know, we forget. Somebody mentioned recently to me about one of their favorite experiences was the night of the blackout when uh, the supporters section all had their glow sticks. Oh, God, yeah. The, night, yeah. the night they that made that, incredible. they based that jersey off. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that amazing. was amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Stick around for a preview of our next match, but first, a little backstory about Las Vegas Lights. Last season, Las Vegas Lights were an independent USL team like Phoenix Rising FC. This year it was announced that Las Vegas Lights would be affiliated with the MLS side LAFC. I talked to Ray Brewer, who writes about Las Vegas Lights and is the managing editor with the Las Vegas Sun newspaper. I asked Ray about the arrangement between the Lights and LAFC. Ray and I spoke after the team's first game, which was against LA Galaxy 2, Los Dos. That game ended in a 5-0 defeat for the Lights, and it set the tone for our conversation, which went like this. Ray, a lot of people from Phoenix travel to Vegas for the good times. Do you know when the Las Vegas Strip is going to be back to full capacity? The hope is that it's up to 100% on June 1st. Um, MGM uh, International today, uh, for example, said that all 10 of their properties on the Strip will be at a 100%. Um, to get there, 90% uh, of your staff has to be vaccinated. So you've seen uh, Wynn Resorts, uh, the Strat, uh, and the MGM Resorts International properties all hit that mark. So uh, by time uh, by time your soccer team plays ours, I think uh, you'll be we'll be rocking and rolling all the way to, to full capacity. And you guys pretty much beat Vegas into the ground. So uh, it's <laughs> a long may that continue, if you will. But uh, yes, it's, it's fun to play. Maybe that will change in the future. What can we expect to see on the field from this team, Ray? Um, you know, it, it's a new world for for the lights because uh, they went from being, you know independent to being affiliated with LAFC and, and and who knows how that factors in with how LAFC wants to run it. So, you know, we're one game in, they lost, you know, 5-0 to the LA Galaxy second team. And you're, you're kind of wondering how this, how this lights team is going to look and feel. We, 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 we can't watch them practice because they're in the LAFC bubble. So 
there's a lot of mystery with with the local fans about about how the squad's going to look when they're out there on the pitch. I'd love to hear more about the relationship with LAFC. Now, personally, I thought that if anyone was going to have something formalized with that team, it would be Phoenix Rising. Because back in 2018, we were getting excellent players on loan from them, including Las Vegas native Tristan Blackman, who played several games with us, helped us win the Western Conference that year. And since he's gone back to LAFC, he's been on a starting 11 ever since. So that was a good relationship. Anyway, Phoenix Rising aside, is the arrangement between LAFC and your team, Las Vegas Lights, a good thing for you guys? Well, you know, the... the I guess the the good thing for Vegas is that, like any minor league sports team, there's always a struggle to 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 make it work financially, and not having to pay or house the players really frees the lights up to to be solvent. And so that's that's the the big thing for them is that they're getting out of under some contracts, and because of that, you know, the quality of player is going to go up because. You know, LAFC obviously has a bigger payroll and, and more resources. Um, so the good news here is the quality of play we suspect is going to be better. Now, arguably, Vegas is one of the worst three teams in the league. Right? There's 31 teams. I'd be hard pressed to put them uh, ahead of anybody else. Right? With the exception of one run in. 2019 they haven't been close to sniffing the playoffs or having a winning team and I think they think that this is a chance for them to win and we love a winner right we want a team that's going to win games if they could start winning it might pick up here to where we get some fanatics like you guys have down in Phoenix so I think that the arrangement with LAFC is great because a it frees up cash b it upgrades the roster and see if they could start winning some games. Now, all of a sudden, you might have some live action with soccer uh, really catching on here. Great. Have you spoken to any fans? Do you know what the reaction from your fans is regarding that relationship? Yeah, so, so that's one of the things is that with the team, they, they haven't had a home game yet. They haven't even trained here yet. It's basically like we have a uh, – listen, the lights of one of the worst road records in the last four years – and it's like they're going to be on the road all season because they're in that LAFC bubble. They're going to be traveling into town on game day to play games. There's been no fan events, no opportunities to meet the players. Um, I, I would I would assume that even the most diehard fan doesn't really know the roster chapter and verse because they haven't seen them play. So you might get an instance out there on that first game, that first weekend in June where you might have the flip card and you're looking at like, oh gosh, who's number 11? Oh, that's blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I really liked about the team, I guess, in some of the past three years is, you know, they had a local player who was real popular, the goalie Tommy Olsen, right? And, you know, folks would go to kind of see him play. And then they they brought in guys who had some name recognition and or guys that we kind of fell in love with. But right now, there's not one player on that roster who you have any sense of, of association with, right? Like, you know, I, I have two kids, they go to the games, you know, you know, your kid always likes to pick a favorite player. Well, you don't have that right now because you haven't seen any of these guys play. Not one player on the team was on the team last year. Wow. So just so that I've, we've got it right in our heads, is your roster made up of a combination of players from LAFC and your home players, or is it entirely LAFC players? It's all LAFC players. So when LS, LAFC was playing exhibition games, a lot of guys that were called up uh, to the roster on that day um, were were guys who ended up playing in our in in, the, in Vegas's first game, like. You know, Danny Misoski, who's a guy who's kind of a tweener between the two leagues, a local kid, a Vegas kid, he came down and he played with the lights on that first game. It's it's a lot of guys under contract with LAFC um, who are coming down and, and playing with the lights. Okay, so if you're the coach, what are you telling your team going into their next game? You know, losing your opener 5-0, you, you had a brand new team, everything was in flux. But I'm wondering if there were any takeaways 
um, or if it's just a big question mark going forward? Well, I mean, th they were serviceable early in the game. They just faded late. So I don't know if it was a fitness deal or if it was a talent deal or if it was a, hey, we're just trying to get to know each other type of thing. But I would think somewhere along the line in the, in the week and a half between games, somebody's talking about, you know, you got to have a little pride. You just can't lose by five goals. I mean, that's unheard of. And um, and then if you look at just the way the schedule li lines up, you know, it's not like there's an opponent where you're going to get healthy against them, right? Because, you know, Phoenix is obviously a, what, a top two team in the league, top three team in the league, right? Sacramento is a top 10 team in the league. Um, so there's no easy breaks where you're like, oh, finally, you know, then oh, Orange County comes along and they're a top 10 team as well. So there's nowhere to really get healthy to where you're going to, you're going to go on a run. So, you know, they're going to have to get this fixed and sure. I think some of it might be familiarity with each other. Um, you know, everybody on the team obviously is with a new coach, Uh, new coach is kind of getting his bearings again with, with the American brand of soccer. If you buy into that narrative, um, I sure do, but I know some other people probably don't. So, but I mean, ultimately you, you, you can't lose by five goals. I mean, that's, that's just, that's not how the game is meant to be. So I, I, I expect, you know, uh, some massive improvement. Will it equal a win? Probably not, but Definitely some more competitive games, especially in the second half of the game. I certainly hope so, Ray. There's nothing better for the game than strong rivalries. And in order to have a strong rivalry, you've got to have a strong competitor. So I hope you guys can work the kinks out so that we can look forward to some epic games against you guys this season. Do you have any closing thoughts, Ray? No, no. I was glad that I could be here and that I could help uh, get your listeners uh, situated with what uh, could be a, uh, a good, easy victory for your squad that you seem to be passionate about. Thank you so much, Ray. All right, brother. Be good. Since I spoke to Ray, Las Vegas Lights went on to play their second game of the season. It was against one of the top contenders in the league, Sacramento Republic. Surprisingly, Las Vegas Lights fielded a very similar starting 11 with only one change in their defense and one in their attack. It was a very different match with a very different outcome. Las Vegas still lost, but it wasn't the 5-0 drubbing that they endured in the first game. The scoreline after the final whistle saw them lose 3-1, a great improvement. Owen, did you see that match? I did catch bits of it, yeah. It was... I, I mean, it gave Vegas their first goal, credit to them. They finally scored one, even if it was from the penalty spot. Um... I think, and, and they were a bit unlucky on the second goal that they conceded. The keeper was down. You really see a, a referee play on at that point, but especially when the keeper was well outside of his penalty area and down. But at the end of the day, they were just a bit disjointed. But yeah, I mean, it's an improvement at least over 5-0. Yeah. What changes do you make to the starting 11 for this upcoming game, Kelly? I don't make any changes. I think... What we're doing is working. I think if we truly learned some lessons from the last game, then it's time to implement them, uh, get that cohesion back, uh, maybe step up the attack, get more aggressive. Um, yeah, so I don't make any changes. I think stay the course, show what you've learned, and destroy them. So you're you're thinking tactical changes from what we've learned and not player changes. Owen, how about you? No, I tend to agree there, actually. I think there's a definitely a benefit in consistency and getting the boys playing together on a regular basis. Okay, in the last few weeks, you've been hedging your bets when it came to score predictions, Owen. Any change here? What's your score prediction? Phoenix Rising versus Las Vegas Lights. I think they'll win. I think Rising's going to win this game, but... um. Maybe by, I'll go with a 3-1. 3-1, that's exciting, Owen. How about you, Kelly? I'm going 4-1. Woohoo, better still. All right, Owen, thank you for joining us. Kelly, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. As always, a pleasure. My prediction is that as long as they field a similar starting 11 to their last two games, we should have no problem beating them 6-0. 
The week after our Las Vegas game, we'll be up against Sacramento Republic, a team that is itself no stranger to drama. I have Alicia Rodriguez, the community editor for SBNation.com, on to fill us in on the drama surrounding their bid for MLS. That's next week. Thanks to Ray Brewer for helping us out this week with this segment. You can see what Ray's up to on Twitter at RayBrewer21. We still have loads more for you on the show today. Next up is Kelly to fill us in on the standings, and after that, Owen is going to talk to us about refereeing, that atrocious refereeing that we saw last weekend. Phoenix friends, rising fans. This is Kelly McCarthy with a quick update on the USL standings. We're three games into our season, so it's time to start looking at the field. For those of you who are just starting to pay attention, it's important to note that the USL has changed shape this season. We still have two conferences, the Eastern and the Western, but now we have two divisions within each conference. For those of you who aren't great with the math, that's four divisions, Pacific, Mountain, Central, and Atlantic. Without getting too detailed, it's relevant to note that each team in the USL will play between four and eight regular season matches outside of their division. That could be across divisions or even across conferences. We've already seen this with Rising's last game against the Tampa Bay Rowdies, who are in the Atlantic Division. So I talked to the USL's lead analyst, Devin Kerr, about the USL's new structure. Here's what he had to say about why we should start paying attention to the full league. Interconference play is going to be awesome here, right? And that's something that a few short seasons ago, we got the opportunity to experience week in and week out. It's something for me, and I know for Mike Watts, we love that. You know, we want to see Phoenix play Louisville, right? We want to see the Rowdies play San Diego and the East versus West. It's almost like, you know, good versus bad, you know, the, the rebel <laughs> Alliance and, and the empire. And um, I think for me, it's really good for the coaches and the teams as well, because most, I don't know if fans know this, but in years past, most coaches don't pay attention to the other conference. You know, they don't, they know what's going on in the West Kelly, and that's about it. So Phoenix is focused on, and I'll use the teams now, even though they didn't experience Phoenix is focused on, San Diego, right? And Austin and the Monarchs and Orange County. That's who they want to know about. They don't have that luxury anymore. Now you got to keep an eye over the shoulder because, you know, they're playing the Tampa Bay Rowdies right out of the gate, or excuse me, San Diego right out of the gate. And then you got to turn around a month later and you're playing Tampa Bay Rowdies. So you got to, you got to keep your eyes peeled. You have to have the knowledge of the full, you know, league now. But I think in the continued growth that is the USL championship, that needs to be seen as a positive not just from the fact that you get an opportunity to see some cool teams in the East and the West, but now the knowledge grows. Now the fans are going to grow with that. They're going to be more in tune of what's going on. It becomes more of a battle, creates a better culture. Thanks, Devin. So let's take a quick look at the standings as we head into week five. Ooh, another side note. These early season standings are tentative at best, grossly misleading at worst. The USL had a rolling start, which means some teams have played four games, other teams have only played one. We're simply not comparing apples to apples yet, but we heed Devin's advice anyway. We look at the field. Starting with the Atlantic Conference, Tampa Bay Rowdies, boo, are top of the pops with three wins, including a win against the reigning Western Conference champions, Phoenix Rising. They're trailed by Hartford Athletic, who are also unbeaten, followed by Miami FC and Charlotte Independence. Take note, Phoenix will play Charlotte on July 10th in their home stadium for one of our interconference games. Fan experience groupies will remember that we interviewed Hugh Roberts from Charlotte Independence in a previous episode, and we talked to him about his role in forming the Black Players Alliance. Next, we move to the Central Division, where FC Tulsa are sitting pretty in the number one spot, followed by Louisville City FC, who have four points after two games. Moving westward to the Mountain Division within the Western Conference, we have Rio Grande Valley FC flying high with nine points. Now, here's a great example of why we should start to care about other divisions. One of Rio Grande's wins was over San Diego Loyal, who they, built, who they beat 1-0 on May 6th. Phoenix Rising will face RGV on July 31st at home. Toros, you better bring the big horns. 
We will also play another Western Division team this season, but we'll wait until they move up in the standings before we give them a shout out. Finally, Pacific Division. LA Galaxy 2 and Tacoma Defiance hold the number one two spots with seven points each. Keep in mind that Tacoma has a game in hand. Phoenix has fallen to the number three spot with six points after three games, and Sacramento rounds out the top of the table with six points after two games. The bottom four teams in our table have zero points. So for those of you who are posh, that's nil and espanol, nada. But to be fair, Oakland and OC, both on the bottom, have only played one game apiece. So time will tell. Make sure you're subscribed to the Fan Experience Podcast to get the latest standings each week. Or, you know, you could just Google it, but where's the fun in that? Welcome to Extra Time, Phoenix Rising family. A topic that lit up the Twitter screens across the United States, in parts of the UK, in Southern Ireland, Australia, and on one tiny screen in Romania, was the refereeing at last week's game when Phoenix Rising lost 2-1 to Tampa Bay Rowdies. Here are a few examples from some Phoenix locals. Chris Francioli, at CM Francioli, he said that the officiating was just awful. Cristiano, who goes, who goes by Chicano Malo, um, he said the referees were absolutely horrible. And at Phoenix Rising 112 said, I really hope Phoenix Rising FC is able to file some sort of grievance about this ref. What's your take on the refereeing? Do we have um, a, a grievance to file or was it just, just another game for us? I understand why people aren't too happy. There were two, I'd say, critical match incidents that didn't go the right way. Number one, I think that when there was the, the coming together between Rufat Dadashov and Evan Luro, the um, Tampa goalkeeper, I think when the goalkeeper lowers his head, moving it into the chest of Dadashov, that's where he, he kind of escalated it. Up until that point, it was the right decision to go yellows each way. I think where he drops the head and it goes into the chest, that's an attempted headbutt. And then we're talking violent conduct. What happens with the goal itself? So Santi scores the goal, then Rufat runs in to collect the ball to run it back to the, the centre circle. Just to be clear here, Rufat has no right to go for that ball. Um, I know players do it all the time, but they don't have any right to inter, you know intervene in that. So in a way, Rufat does instigate that. And you have to be clear about that. Up until the point, as I said, where the head drops, I think it's yellows each way is perfectly fair. In this case, we probably should be talking about violent conduct for an attempted head. But, but that's something that's very easy for us to say when we are watching it, you know, that step removed, and then we can watch it on a replay again as well. It's very different when you are standing very close to two people who are about to, you know, effectively look like it might boil over and your first priority at that point is how do you stop it from boiling over the second one that's really winding people up is there was an incident about five minutes after that um where Forrest Lasso comes in he goes through the back of Solomon Asante and takes him out in the penalty area doesn't look like there's anything on the ball whatsoever but he does make a lot of contact with the back of Asante's legs a lot of people want a penalty for that I would tend to agree it probably should have been a penalty. But again, there are two factors you have to consider here. And they're not things probably that should be considered uh, on the pitch in the moment. But there's a very big difference between what should be and what realistically is going to be considered. Those two things are, number one, Asante has a reputation. Whether you like it or not, he has built that reputation and that is entirely on him. He is someone who does on times embellish contact a lot. Um, and, you know, as much as we'd like to say, oh, the referee shouldn't be thinking about that. They should be just focusing on what's going on in front of them. How do you get that out of your mind? Especially when there's any element of doubt. Then the second one is, how likely was Asante probably to get the second touch on that ball? How likely was he to then go back and win it? Or was it going to go to the defender? 
Again, really that shouldn't play into it, but when you're giving a, a decision that's as match critical as a penalty that could well you know, lead to an equaliser, those are going to be things that are going to be in the referee's mind. But beyond those two major you know, incidents, I don't think there was anything huge that gives people a great scope for complaint. Hello, Fan Experience listeners. June is Pride Month, and the Phoenix Rising supporters group Union 602 asked us to remind you they're collecting donations for the nonprofit organization One in Ten. We talked to Chris, one of Union 602's founders, who told us that they promote inclusion not only at Rising matches, but in all walks of life. Chris explained that the motivation behind their campaign was to assist LGBTQ individuals who are lost lonely, hurt, and alienated. And One in Ten is a fantastic organization who serves LGBTQ youth and young adults by offering resources and promoting self-expression and empowerment through a variety of social and service programs. Please reach out to Union 602 on Instagram and Facebook and through their handle at Union 602 on Twitter. You can learn more about One in Ten on their website, O-N-E-N, T-E-N.org. What a great episode. What incredible people I get to hang out with. Owen Evans, you're a star. Kelly McCarthy, Susio, Tori Ward, Ray Brewer, Devin Kerr, and Chris Bloomberg. I'm eternally grateful to all of you. Thank you, Sam Healy, for the music. I can't wait for your album to drop on Spotify. Thank you, Phoenix Rising family, for listening to this podcast. Connect with me on Twitter at FanExperienceFC, and I'll see you next week after we beat the lights 6 nothing.